Here at Why Dance Matters, we relish the multi-hyphenates, people who combine an interest in dance alongside expertise in something completely different. The doctor who dances, the hedge fund manager who dances, the whistle-blowing lawyer who dances. We've met and admired them all. Today, however, we meet an even less likely combination. The Harvard-trained physicist who dances with robots. Yes, you heard that right. I'm David Jays, and this is Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. We're about to meet Merit Moore, who is not only a physicist researching robotics, but also a professional ballerina performing at the highest level. She spent this season with the Boston Ballet. Either one of those career vocations takes ridiculous amounts of dedication. So how does she manage both? How do they feed each other? How do the rigours of the ballet studio meet the intellectual challenges of the physics lab? During lockdown, Merritt couldn't dance with her human colleagues, so she began exploring the world of dancing with robots. Her experiments paid off. She's now invited to perform across the world. And if you look online, you'll see the robotic arms going beyond simply technological problems and into a territory that is beautiful, even emotional. How does Merit do it? And as if all of that wasn't enough, Merit also dreams of becoming the first ballerina in space. She was even on the BBC series, Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? I wouldn't bet against her having what it takes, but let's boldly go and find out. Merit, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Thank you so much for having me. And you're in London, and I will never have a chance to ask this question again, so I'm going to ask it. Are you here on robot business? Mm. (laughs) Multiple things. I was giving a talk at the Tate Britain, and then, yeah, I had to stop in Lisbon to do some robot dancing back here. And Kevin O'Hare has been so kind as to allow me to train with the beautiful dancers at Royal Ballet. So I'm very honoured. Amazing. Yeah. You do quite a lot of this stuff of coming into a company, which is always interesting because you're sort of entering a tribe with its Mm -hmm. own ways Mm -hmm. of behaving and ways of doing. What's that like? It's been so incredible in the sense that 15 years ago, I remember I thought it was my last year dancing. Every single year, I genuinely have thought, wow, I'm really going to appreciate this because this is my last year dancing. This is my last year on stage. So having these opportunities to be with companies has been so incredible. And also, it's such a small world. Whenever I go into a company, I already know some of the dancers. We know dancers who've known dancers. So that's always fine. I think we've all had very similar shared experiences. I've always, yeah, really enjoyed it. And you are, as we're going to be discussing, 
a ballerina in the world of physics and a physicist in the world of ballet. Mm, Which community finds you the most bewildering? The most bewildering? Or don't they? Or are they just completely As When you're in physics, on planet physics, you're a physicist. When you're on planet ballet, you're a dancer and no one really talks about the other stuff. Interestingly, I get asked a lot more about women in science when I'm discussing that in the science world. I've actually found it, women have a really tough time in the dance world. Like I've, I found it actually, it's harder in the dance world. There's so much more competition. I feel that dancers then become, female dancers then become these bodies that can be replaced. The demands on a female dancer, men do a hefty load. But for instance, when we do Swan Lake, the boys are out, but <laughs> they're not there till the end. <laughs> And the girls are in all four acts in point shoes. So yeah. that element, and I think that the demands, it's lessened a bit, but the demands of the physique on women has previously been a lot more intense. That's so interesting. And we obviously think about the two careers that you're following in terms of arts versus science and creativity versus... But I'm wondering... Is in some ways physics more creative in that you are encouraged to question and explore rather than follow patterns that have been set by others? And especially when you're in the corps de ballet, you're not expected to deviate and do anything individual with those patterns. There was a fun cocktail event that I hosted with a bunch of professional ballet dancers, scientists, People from all works of life between science and arts, the question asked was, where do you feel most creative? And funnily, most people felt most creative in their hobbies rather than their professions. I think that the dancers would say one was into fashion and one was into photography. They felt most creative there. And the scientists felt most creative in their extracurricular hobbies because I think that the farther up we go, often there is a pressure to fit into a, I don't know, like a labeling or a grading system or somehow I think as society we've deemed what's perfect and not what's not. And so it does get harder, I think, the higher up you go in these levels to be super creative and loose because I guess we've said, oh, what's that's good and that's bad. and Someone doing it this way is good and someone doing it that way is bad. Whether it's in dance, right? Dance has a very specific turnout is good. Not turned out is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Not pointed is bad. In physics, I found as well, there's often, you need to publish a lot of papers. And so sometimes there's no more room for as much creativity because the demands of publishing papers are on you in order to pursue academia. And so then people tend to play it safe and say, oh, well, someone did it with six photons. Let's do the same thing, but with seven photons. It's a mix as well. But also within those ideals of excellence, I think people do find their ways of being creative in those environments, in their own ways. Merit, let's wheel back a little 
because we started in the middle. <laughs> but let's go back to the beginning. I love your description of your childhood. You grew up with a Korean mother and a white American father. And you've talked about how they didn't want you to spend your time with Barbies and Disney movies. Instead, you were wrestling and you were making potions and you were playing American football. It sounds like quite a heady mix. It was, I cannot thank my parents enough, to be honest, because the decisions that they made, I think, were counter this norm. It was actually more work for them. There was no TV in the house, no fashion magazine, no Disney my dad would make up his own fairy tales where Prince Charming would come and my sister and I would have to jump up and be like, and oh, and Prince Charming would be like, will you marry me? I'm like, and my sister and I would have to be like, no, you have to meet our father first. You know, like that was how we grew up. And very much there are books, like my mom just filled the house with books and paint and beads and glue and I like it was just constant I could I just made a mess every single day <laughs> that sounds fantastic and was it so it's about exposing you to as many different things as possible so you could discover what your passions and your talents might be there was no emphasis on finding a passion they actually I wasn't allowed to do any extracurricular until I was like nine or ten like I had wanted to do soccer when I was younger and all these things. And my mom was just like, she didn't want my sister and I to have pressure when we were young. She really felt like, you guys are kids, have fun and play. And so the house was just filled with things. Her thing was just stimulating the mind and creativity. And we'd go to plays because we didn't have a TV. So she'd take us to plays or dance or some form twice a week. And we'd go to museums and it was just like she just wanted us to have a constant stream of engaging our brains so that was the I guess the philosophy behind them. <laughs> and the no tv was because my dad was actually in the entertainment business in LA I think they didn't especially because it was my sister and I two girls in the house they felt like tv and media really portrayed women a certain way that women were very passive and there was a pressure to be like a certain look or a style and they wanted to eliminate that sort of feeling for us so that we could feel totally free and be as big and bold as we possibly wanted to be at home. And so I guess the ban on extracurricular activities explains why you came to ballet relatively late. A lot of dancers we speak to on this podcast have been <laughs> in class since they were four years old but you were I think around 12 when you started yeah and that was well at 10 I started gymnastics and I loved it it was my first love but I didn't have the body type for it it couldn't do the pounding I wasn't I was doing the artistic kind that was the vault and bar it just my poor body was just not happy <laughs> And so then we, I had to switch to something else. My mom was a double black belt, so I wanted to do karate. And then there was some sort of bribe where 
Like if I got my ears pierced, I'd have to take ballet for six months to fix my posture because she said I was walking like my Korean grandfather. And so I was like, oh, pink and tights, like what? Like, I don't want to do that. And then fell in love with it. And it was way tougher than I imagined. I was like, whoa, this is tough. (laughs) And I think my mom kind of saw it in me is like with the artistic gymnastics, I do very well on floor and music lit me up. I'd been a child where, like, I didn't talk till I was three. I was always very quiet, and it just, and to this day, it is the most natural way I feel like I can express myself instantaneously, and it's very hard to think about a life without dance. You do now seem really comfortable both when you're performing, but also when you're presenting. Was that always part of the appeal, the idea of performing for an audience? It's the one place where I don't think is on stage. Because I, at the tendency, I will overthink everything. Like, I'll think about technique during rehearsals and class. But when I'm on stage, I feel like it's such a giving, generous moment where I think, like, I want the people who are sitting here to feel something. It's so, it feels so zen. It feels like I'm in my own world. There's so many moments, like, performances that I can't even remember <laughs> in a beautiful way. I'm just like, wow, that happened. And at the same time as dance was speaking to you, you were clearly pursuing your academic interests as well. I think you've said that physics in some ways helped you dance because you could think about how how momentum worked, how how torque worked, how you could, as it were, map out what you had to do in the dance studio. Did it work the other way round as well? Did the experience of dance and the skills you were developing as a dancer help with your work in physics? Yes, it did. So yeah, physics definitely helped dance in the sense that I think visualization for all dancers is such a powerful tool. And understanding the center of mass and torque and force and projectile motion, like it it helps solidify the physics around what the body needs to do. And so that was incredibly powerful. And then vice versa. So there's this funny dancer PhD for dorky nerds in science. I did the dancer PhD for my experiment, which was creating pairs of entangled single photons, particles of light, via this process, spontaneous parametric down conversion. And since they're entangled, I was like, ooh, I'm going to do a tango between a partner. and I imagine the lab was the crystal, like to create these photons, you need high powered laser through a crystal. And the music was this high powered laser. And then it made me think, oh, are the pairs of photons created in the middle of the crystal, the beginning, the end? And it made me then think about, I'm going to throw in some physics words because there's, you know, it's like there's dispersion. So like materials have a different dispersion than the air. And so depending on when the photon was created, it would have a longer time through this material and would change the pump bandwidth. 
anyways, long story short, it made me like think about the experiment. I was like, oh, I need to think about the pump bandwidth. And it made me like actually focus on part of the experiment that I hadn't focused on because normally we're given these equations. I'd written out the equation so many times, but you can forget using your imagination to really visualize what's going on. And it made me clue into that part. And then it, the experiment worked. <laughs> so in that sense, I was like, thanks, Dancer PhD. That was helpful. And we mentioned robot business at the beginning of the conversation. And you've increasingly been researching dance in robotics. It's interesting because it must be a challenge because it's not just task-based, is it, dance? It's about thought and creativity and aesthetics and empathy as well. Those are quite interesting things to model in a robot and quite a challenge for you, I'm guessing. It's been really fun in the sense that it reminds me of my childhood. So when I was a kid, I would put together these like 3D puzzles. And actually, it was the thing I used to get in trouble for. My mom would be like, Mary, go to sleep. And I'd like sneak out and finish my 3D puzzle. So working with the robots, it's like a puzzle in the sense that the ones that I work with at the moment are industrial robotic arms. So they don't have extra arms. They don't have legs. But how do I use the six joints to replicate or mimic some sort of figure that I'm dancing with? And how do you create emotion in something that's very sterile and metallic? And the questions of, they say that actually how we communicate is actually majority nonverbal. It's mostly body language. And so can you communicate with nonverbal language, with something that doesn't have a human form. It's been a really fun journey. When I watch your films, Merit, I often feel a real sense of tenderness between you and the robots and between the way in which that robotic arm will just sweep over your prone body. Have I just seen too many Pixar movies or am I reading that into it? as a movie viewer, or do you feel that that same sense of emotion? Well, it has been my companion for during the pandemic. It was like my only <laughs> companion. And like it's not going to replace humans. But when I dance with a human, I am dancing with that, their past history, who they are. Like I, I can't get past that part. But when I dance with a robot, like I can bring in elements of I can bring in memories or dancing with you know, figures who have passed away that I really want to say something to, or there's kind of a lot more freedom to explore very deep emotions with the robot. And actually the performances that have been the deepest for me have been with the robot where I'm not one to often cry, but like the ones where I cry on stage is like with the robot, which is a, has been surprising for myself. Wow. So when you're performing, you're all those empathetic little muscles and connections, they're all working in exactly the same way they would if you were doing a part de deux with a human partner. Right. If we're not more, I feel like there's more, or at least I have felt the pressure, maybe, or the motivation to dig deeper in terms of emotion because I'm dancing with something that 
doesn't have emotion, like in order for it to read for the audience, I feel like it has to be like really deep and genuine. Yeah, it has been an interesting journey in that sense. Yeah. And a lot of this work developed during the pandemic, of course, as you said, at a time when people couldn't work together during the lockdowns, you could work with your robot arm partners. So as well as an intellectual focus, did it give you a sense of connection during that time, which was so isolating? Bizarrely, it did, because I would be in the, there's an empty studio, and I'd be there from morning till night. And I don't think I could have done that if it was just by myself. But the fact that I was kind of working with something else, it kept my company. You've been able to continue these two really disparate careers, which is astonishing because on your website, really beautifully, you detail the hours involved in ballet, the hours of practice, of class, of rehearsal, typically 10 to 15 hours a day. I have no idea how you have time for anything else after that. Yeah, there have been, I'd say, while in company, my sympathy goes out to company dancers because one's body is dead (laughs) and then it's so hard to do write an email when you're like oh my gosh there's so many times when I was like oh I can't like my brain is just can't even write the simplest email right now because it's just tired yeah I mean that this past semester I was full-time at Boston Ballet but also a professor at NYU Abu Dhabi teaching creative robotics for two classes it was I had to fly back and forth and I come sometimes on Zoom overnight from like midnight to 7 a.m. and then up (laughs) an hour later to take company class. This past semester was a bit crazy. That was the craziest semester. I don't highly recommend, but I knew for myself that it was just six months and I didn't. Both jobs were like dream jobs and such incredible opportunities. It was incredibly fun, even though it was hard. (laughs) So Merit, you were talking about how at various points in your dancing career you felt this might be the final year, this might be my last year on stage. How do you think you'll know when the time has come for you to step into the wings? I guess when I stopped getting phone calls. (laughs) The robot dancing has taken off in the sense that, I mean, I performed last year, like in Bucharest, Switzerland, Germany, Harvard in front of Mark Zuckerberg. I was just in Lisbon, LA twice. That one keeps on going. And then for ballet companies, post pandemic, I wasn't expecting to go back to a company. Like I wasn't planning to audition for any companies, but I got a call from Miko Nissanen at Boston Ballet. And when you get a call from one of the best companies in the US, you kind of have to say yes. Like, <laughs> so when the phone calls start, stop coming then i'll know it's your time and when someone like boston ballet gets in touch is it because it can't be just because they want another body another swan to join the line they must also want some of that 
extra curiosity and hinterland that you bring with you? Perhaps, perhaps. I worked on a robot dance for them in September, so I think that there was that familiarity. I'm not sure. something else you've done in this packed past few years was taking part in a BBC series called Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? Which is a good title. Merit, I have to ask, do you have what it takes to be an astronaut? We shall see. We shall see. (laughs) That was a phenomenal experience. And then there was Yusaka Mazawa, a Japanese billionaire who's the first flight on Starship, the massive SpaceX rocket, to go to the moon. And he wants to take eight artists. They say they got a million applicants. And I got down to the final 16, not the final eight. So very close. But I feel like I'm getting close each time. (laughs) Hopefully soon. (laughs) What is it about that prospect that gets your juices flowing why is it such an exciting idea to you passion is a curious one right because i don't think i can't tell if we're born with it or if we're influenced by what makes us tick because like for instance there's some types of physics that i'm just like not really passionate about but there's some that i really am like it's just a niche thing to be picky but I I don't know so going to the moon is just one of those things where I'm like I want to go I don't really know why I think it's like it's my personality has always been an adventurer I'm willing to jump in the deep end without testing if I have floaties or testing if I'm the type of personality where I'll jump out of a plane and then on the way down be like maybe I should check if I have a parachute because that would probably be helpful but I think it's just my personality maybe that's so intrigued by adventure and being in the unknown and something new and exciting and the frontier. I love it. Well, Merit, before you boldly go where no ballerina has gone before, we have one final question, which is why does dance matter to you? Dance matters to me because it is the most raw, authentic way that I can express myself. And it has become such a huge part of how I live and who I am. I think that the lessons that dance has provided are invaluable and the experiences and the memories are ones to be cherished. And my best memories are from experiences on the stage and dances also like a incredible way of generously giving back to the audience and trying to have people like feel something that they haven't experienced felt before so that's what dance is to Merit, it's been wonderful speaking to you you've opened up new worlds it's been really lovely thanks so much thank you
I don't know about you, but I, for one, will welcome our robot overlords if they're into dance. Less subjugation of the human race, more arabesques to Debussy. I can live with that. And if anyone can make it happen, Merit can. Do let us know about any other extraordinary people from outside the dance world who we could invite onto the podcast. I'm at Mr. David Jays on Twitter, and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters, and you can explore its work via our show notes. Our guest today was Merritt Moore. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Neve Carey Furness, Keisha Dodd, and Katie Hagan, and our artwork is by Bex Glendening. I asked our producer, Sarah Miles, if she'd like to be the first podcaster in space. She was very definite that she wouldn't, so Why Dance Matters remains earthbound for now. I'm David Jays. Thanks for listening. Take care and see you soon.